0: Hello, I'm Adam Pelshe, and you're listening to Off the Shelf, Windsor Public Library's weekly program discussing books, culture, and what's happening in the world of public libraries. On today's episode, we talk about Marshall McLuhan, the Canadian writer and academic who predicted the internet. The internet has permeated almost all aspects of our lives, social, economic, entertainment, and political. It's challenging to think of an area of contemporary life that does not have the internet involved in some way. However, the ubiquity of the web is a relatively recent phenomenon. Even as home computers increased in popularity during the 1990s, the idea of a connected system of computers playing a crucial role in how we work, socialize, and engage with the world seemed more in the realm of science fiction than in the near future. Looking at the representation of what mass media projected the World Wide Web to be, from films like Hackers to series like Reboot, there was an obvious misunderstanding of what the internet was and how it would be used by people. In these media representations, the internet was viewed more akin to the concept of virtual reality, a digital world that users inhabited that could only be traversed by specially trained and savvy hackers. Books and film from this era are filled with figures who possess elite and esoteric knowledge on how to navigate across the digital landscape. This depiction was first popularized in William Gibson's trend-setting 1984 novel Neuromancer and acted as the blueprint for how pop culture depicted the internet and its users. For the majority of the population, the concept of the internet existed in extremely hyperbolic terms and as a tool that only a few with specialized knowledge, could use. The concept of the internet as what it actually is, a worldwide system of connected computers that allow users to exchange content and information, was perhaps too didactic and unromantic for most people to accept. In the decades before personal home computers, when even telephone lines weren't available at all residences in Canadian communities, the concept of the internet may have seemed ludicrous. However unlikely Internet culture seemed initially during the mid-century, there was one man who predicted the widespread use and ubiquity of the Internet. That man was the Canadian philosopher, communication theorist, and intellectual Marshall McLuhan. Herbert Marshall McLuhan is probably best known in popular culture for coining the phrase, the medium is the message. This quote expresses the idea That the form of a medium, be it television, film, or book, embeds itself in any message it conveys. This means the medium influences how the message is perceived. The same story told in a print medium will convey much different content if portrayed on television. While his ideas were largely met with contention by his contemporaries, since McLuhan's death in 1980, there has been a resurgence of interest in his work as it set out a map, of how information technology has affected our world and changed the way we live." In 1962, McLuhan was quoted as postulating on the next great medium. A computer as a research and communication instrument could enhance retrieval, obsolete mass library organization, retrieve the individual's encyclopedic functions, and flip it into a private line to speedily tailor data of a saleable kind. In this single sentence, McLuhan seemed to prophesize not only the internet but the use of online applications and platforms to tailor information, entertainment, and services to match an individual's preferences, in short, predicting the type of world we see around us today. One of McLuhan's preeminent theories was outlined in his 1962 book called The Gutenberg Galaxy. In this book, McLuhan presented the idea that humanity currently inhabits the electronic age, an era of human history characterized by a community of people brought together by technology. People participating in this global village will be defined, as according to McLuhan, as a community where everyone has access to the same information through technology. This definition lends itself completely to the nature of the internet and the access to information it offers all its users. At the time of his writings, McLuhan's ideas certainly stirred up a reaction, but not always in a positive way. In fact, in spite of their prescience, McLuhan's ideas were often met with ridicule during his lifetime. His works, which called for people to recognize the shifting paradigms of how we access and interpret information, were often viewed as controversial, from literary critics like Northrop Frye to progressive educational bodies like the National Association of Educational Broadcasters, it seemed that contemporaries had difficulty understanding McLuhan's concepts. However, a major shift in how McLuhan's ideas were received occurred around the 1960s, specifically in how television allowed greater access to information, and imagery, on the Vietnam War, The startling images being broadcast to screens across the developed world provided an immediacy to the conflict and brutality that was often lacking in other media. It is often said that Vietnam was the first televised war. This is an idea McLuhan himself supported, saying that television brought the brutality of war into the comfort of the living room. Vietnam was lost in the living rooms of America, not on the battlefields of Vietnam. The growing antipathy with America's involvement in Vietnam, along with the undeniable changes in how electronic media were allowing people to perceive and engage with the world, ignited a new interest in McLuhan. By the publication of 1964's Understanding Media, McLuhan went from a fringe intellectual to a veritable celebrity. He was in demand for talk shows in America, Canada, and the UK. McLuhan became such a celebrity figure he even portrayed himself in a brief cameo during Woody Allen's 1977 comedy, Annie Hall. His scrutiny of hyper commercial culture became synonymous with the views of the student and hippie cultures in the 1960s. In fact, counterculture guru Timothy Leary attributed one of his most famous phrases to a conversation that he had with McLuhan tune on, tune in, drop out. While the slogan was used by Leary to endorse the growing consumption of psychedelic drugs in the 1960s, McLuhan's original use was a bit more ironic in its intention. A satiric jingle set to the tune of an old Pepsi commercial. Psychedelics hit the spot. 500 micrograms, that's a lot. Tune in, tune on, and drop out. Rather than an endorsement of Leary's drug-fueled countercultural ideas, It was more a light mockery of the absurdity of post-industrial culture's willingness to create a flashy commercial and a catchy tune for seemingly anything, regardless of the actual product. Given McLuhan's conservative social views and his background as a practicing Catholic, it would be difficult to believe he would endorse the type of secular psychedelic counterculture that Leary supported. One of the most surprising things about McLuhan was his reticence about the electronic age of man that his writing so exhaustively analyzed. Rather than endorsing the type of culture that burgeoning information technology was leading us towards, his writing attempted to remain objective. While cynical towards the type of superficial culture the rampant bombardment of commercials was creating, McLuhan tried to write about the electronic age with a detached objectivity. Arguably the founder of media studies, McLuhan would soberly analyze and project how he saw that technology and technological advancement was affecting our culture. Indeed, many of McLuhan's peers and academics who have studied his writing agree. Rather than revel in the current world of habitual social media use and net obsession, he would be aghast at it. As breakthroughs continue every year in the field of neuroscience, it is now being established as fact that, as McLuhan theorized, our brains do change and react based on our exposure to information technology, and specifically, the internet. As articulated in Nicholas Carr's Pulitzer Prize-winning book The Shallows, How the Internet is Changing Our Brains, long-term exposure to the internet negatively impacts our ability to remember, affects brain plasticity, And contributes to loss of cognitive control. This is an effect that McLuhan predicted as he succinctly put it, we shape our tools and afterwards our tools shape us. In 2017, people have a world of information literally at their fingertips. Smartphones, tablets, and laptops are commonplace. More than the tool of the elite few depicted in the pre-millennium, The internet now acts as a medium that is accessible to almost everyone. As the internet continues to have an ever-pervasive effect on our lives, who knows what impact our growing reliance on this technology has on our minds and the way we interpret information. Another quick note on Marshall McLuhan. Many people don't realize the Canadian intellectual actually had a connection to our city of Windsor, Ontario. After engaging in correspondence with the author Windham Lewis, who was residing in Windsor at the time, McLuhan decided to accept an offer to teach at Assumption College. He taught at the institution from 1944 to 1946, before relocating to Toronto, where he would live for the remainder of his life. Major writings from Marshall McLuhan, including Understanding Media, The Gutenberg Galaxy, and War and Peace in the Global Village, can be borrowed from the Windsor Public Library. For more information on the life of McLuhan, check out Douglas Copeland's insightful and entertaining 2010 biography, simply titled Marshall McLuhan, also available through the Windsor Public Library. While McLuhan's ideas have reached a point of wide renown, the intellectual posted many other cultural theories beyond those related to electronic technology. Another idea he touched upon was that of national identity, and, specifically, Canadian identity. The thinker famously stated in 1963 that Canada is the only country in the world that knows how to live without an identity. What exactly did McLuhan mean by this? If Canadians are indeed without a sense of national identity, then what are we celebrating this year which focuses on our 150th anniversary since Confederation? In a statement made during a New York Times magazine interview last October, the current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, claimed that Canada is the first post-national state and that there is no core identity, no mainstream in Canada. Certainly, it's been a slow journey towards forming an idea of Canadian identity. Even after Confederation, Britain retained control of Canada's foreign affairs, an act which directly led to Canada's involvement in World War I. Canada's patriation from the UK only occurred in 1982, leaving our nation with only a few years separate from the influence of the monarchy. With so much cultural, economic, and governmental dependence on Britain, Canada showed itself to be a very strange nation, a large, populous, and productive country which, for the majority of its existence, was neither sovereign nor independent. Adding to the confusion was our close proximity to the United States and the bleed-over of the cultural, labor, and economic influences of that country. It only makes sense that Canadian identity would be tenuous and difficult to define. Unlike the British, with centuries of history, custom, and monarchical rule to establish a sense of national identity, and unlike America's developed sense of identity through negation, Declaiming their British and European roots and claiming independence as much as possible, Canada was not afforded the legacy nor the sovereignty to define itself in the same way. Looking at the first century of our nationhood, we didn't refrain from relying on the imported and inherited customs of the country's colonial past. This, in part, may have been what McLuhan was referring to a lack of establishing the customs and tropes of a unified national identity, whether in the vein of Britain. the US. It seems that contemporary attempts to define Canada and our national identity are through comparison, citing our politeness, prioritizing of natural landscapes and park areas, and our level of diversity compared to countries like the UK and America. Perhaps it is the prevalent idea of the nation as a mosaic in comparison to the melting pot of assimilation that sets us apart, and which makes defining a Canadian identity so difficult. Perhaps being post-national, to refer to the language used by Trudeau, is in part acknowledging the diversity of experiences, customs, and lifestyles in our country, and realizing that no one ubiquitous idea of national identity can encapsulate that all. Of course, our country's growth into a nation that values and promotes our diverse people wasn't in the foreground of cultural ideas during McLuhan's day. During the most productive era of his writing, the majority of Canadians came from English and French ancestry. According to figures from Canada's census in 1961, 43.8% of the population were British in ethnic origin, and 304 were French. The vast majority of the remaining population were also from European backgrounds, with less than 4% of the population credited to other backgrounds, including the country's own indigenous people. As nice as it would be to think that McLuhan's idea of Canada being without an identity came from a contemporary sense of valuing diversity, that unfortunately was not the reality of his time. What exactly was McLuhan referring to when he claimed Canada had no national identity? According to the scholar B. W. Powell, McLuhan saw Canada as a great experiment for a new concept of nationhood, one removed from the state's demarcated borderlines and walls, its connection to blood and soil, its obsession with cohesion based on a melting pot. Rather than adhering to the raw populism of America or being shackled by the cultural heritage of Britain, Canada as McLuhan knew it, was a country unencumbered by these notions. Rather than a weakness, this was a trait that excited McLuhan, a country that could function without the constructs of national ideals for its citizens, a notion that positively supported his idea of the global village. This may, in fact, be what McLuhan was referring to in his infamous comment. What do you make of McLuhan's idea of Canada lacking a national identity? Do his ideas match Trudeau's current notion of Canada being a post-national state, or do you see a shift in the way that Canadians view themselves? Are we coming closer, if not already at a point, where we are able to define our sense of national identity? Let us know what you think. Send your response to Shelf at com. Speaking of our nation... A great number of Canadian talents were represented at this year's Eisner Awards. This annual award ceremony recognizes the best publications and creators of comics, graphic novels, and cartoons. This award ceremony is named after the graphic novel illustrator and writer Will Eisner, one of the most important and prolific artists in this field, responsible for the creation of such important comics like The Spirit and The Contract with God Trilogy. This is perhaps comic's most prestigious award. This year, a number of big awards were given to prominent Canadian creators. Jeff Lemire, the Toronto-based illustrator and writer responsible for the acclaimed Essex County Trilogy and his Gore Downey collaboration, Secret Path, won for Best New Series for Black Hammer. This series follows the lives of a group of Golden Age superheroes, transplanted from their own world to a mysterious farm, and are forced to live together. Not only a love letter to the golden age of heroes from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, the series is also a melancholy rumination on isolation, displacement, and the struggle to feel relevant in an ever-changing world. The first collected volume of Black Hammer is available to borrow from the Windsor Public Library. Another big Canadian winner this year is Calgary's Fiona Staples, the illustrator for the series Saga. This series won four awards, Best Continuing Series, Best Writer, Best Cover Artist, and Best Pencil-slash-Inker. Collected volumes of Saga, written by Brian K. Vaughan, can also be borrowed from the Windsor Public Library. Other big Canadian winners include Ontario's David Finch, winning the Best Short Story for Good Boy from Batman Annual No. 1, Ottawa's Ryan North for Best Publication for Teens for The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, and another win for North, along with Edmonton's Chip Zdarsky for Best Humor Publication for the Archie series Jughead. Congratulations to all the winners of this year's Eisner Awards. Speaking of award winners, the recipient of the Arthur C. Clarke Award was also recently announced. Named after the important British science fiction author, This award is given to the best science fiction novel of the year and has been given to such prestigious names as Emily St. John Mandel, China Miéville, and Margaret Atwood. This year's Arthur C. Clarke went to a book that has already amassed a fair share of awards and platitudes, The Underground Railroad, by the American author Colson Whitehead. This novel depicts an alternative history in which a literal underground subway system transports escaped slaves across the country. A scathing examination of America's brutal past, with echoes of the racial discrimination that exists to this day, The Underground Railroad is a bold and ambitious book. Whitehead's novel has received incredible praise, appearing on multiple Best of 2016 Year End lists, and has received three major literary awards, the 2017 Andrew Carnegie Medal of Excellence, the 2016 National Book Award for Fiction, and the 2017 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. In addition to all these awards, the book was also recently announced as part of the long list for the Man Booker Prize. Congratulations to Colson Whitehead on these prestigious wins. The Underground Railroad, as well as his novels Zone 1 and Sag Harbor, are available to borrow, From the Windsor Public Library. You have been listening to Off the Shelf, Windsor Public Library's weekly program discussing books, culture, and what's happening in the world of libraries. If you have any comments or questions about today's episode, please forward those to Shelf at WindsorPublicLibrary.com. You can also visit www.WindsorPublicLibrary.com for more information on our collections, programs, and services.